Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we feature Charles Simic from a Poetry Downtown event in 2007. Charles Simic was born in Belgrade, Yugoslavia in 1938, and some of his earliest memories are of German bombs falling on the city. Later, the Russian army would arrive. Simic was brought as a child to the United States in 1954 by his family, and at the age of 15, began to learn English. So it's remarkable, to say the least, that nearly half a century later, Simic would be named Poet Laureate of the United States, the same year of this recording. Over the course of his career, Simic won nearly every prize for poetry, including the Pulitzer, and has published essays, edited anthologies, and translated poetry from French, Serbian, Croatian, Macedonian, and Slovenian. In this recording, Simic reads from work that spans his career, from his violent and also tender childhood to his early life in Chicago and New York, and later about New Hampshire, where he taught for decades. One reviewer's comments seem to me to sum up the experience of reading and hearing his work, quote, There are few poets writing in America today who share his lavish appetite for the bizarre, his inexhaustible repertoire of indelible characters and gestures. Simic is, perhaps, our most disquieting muse. And in the contrasts among his poems, as he leapfrogs around the decades, I found somehow a strange resonance with our world today, both here in the U.S. and abroad, at this very strange and particular moment. Charles Simic died January 9th, 2023, at the age of 84. Here's Charles Simic from Poetry Downtown in 2007. Uh, good evening, and thank you for the introduction. It's nice to be in Portland after 36 years. Uh, 36 years ago, I gave a reading, spring of 1971. Uh, Portland has changed a great deal. Uh, I'm going to read uh, from three different collections, uh, starting with a book of, uh, of prose poems uh, called The World Doesn't End. Uh, it's a book of some, I think there are 77 pieces. Uh, uh, most of the poems don't have any titles. They are very short, a paragraph or two. And the type is large, so it gives the impression that there's more on the page than there actually is. Uh, so I'll just read just a few of them. Uh, some of them were written 
at the same time as I was writing a narrative of my early life uh, for some kind of, uh, it's one of these sort of literary encyclopedias, and they asked me to sort of write down just just a sort of basic narrative of my, my early life. Uh, and uh, that seemed kind of boring, uh, you know, just to, to tell what, what really happened. It uh, would be more interesting to, to have a, an alternative and more fabulous version. So some of that is reflected in few pieces I'm going to read uh, here. I was stolen by the gypsies. My parents stole me right back. Then the gypsies stole me again. This went on for some time. One minute I was in the caravan suckling the dark tit of my new mother. The next I sat at the long dining room table eating my breakfast with a silver spoon. It was the first day of spring. One of my fathers was singing in the bathtub. The other one was painting a live sparrow, the colors of a tropical bird. We were so poor, I had to take the place of the bait in the mousetrap. <laughs> All alone in the cellar, I could hear them pacing upstairs, tossing and turning in their beds. These are dark and evil days, the mouse told me as he nibbled my ear. <laughs> Years passed. My mother wore a cat fur collar, which she stroked in until its sparks lit up the cellar. Everybody knows the story about me and Dr. Freud, says my grandfather. We were in love with the same pair of black shoes in the window of the same shoe store. <laughs> the store, unfortunately, was always closed. There'd be a sign, debt in the family, or back after lunch. <laughs> but no matter how long I waited, no one would come to open. Once I caught Dr. Freud there shamelessly admiring the shoes. We glared at each other before going our separate ways, never to meet again. <laughs> One more. Uh, this actually was the oldest of the lot, and uh, uh, I had the, the first couple lines, or more than that, maybe f three or four lines, in, in, a, in, a, in a rooming house in New York City back in late, 19, late, late 1950s, and then it took me 15, 20 years to kind of figure out the rest. Someone shuffles by my door muttering, our goose is cooked. Strange. I have my knife and fork ready. I even have the napkin tied around my neck, but the plate before me is still empty. Nevertheless, someone continues to mutter outside my door regarding a certain hypothetical, allegedly cooked goose that he claims is ours in common. 
This is now something totally different uh, from that. Um, and uh, I mean, this is from a volume of selected poems, and uh, uh, the poems go back to 1963 and uh, to 2003. And uh, uh, a poem about um, my childhood. I was born in Yugoslavia in 1938, and when I was three years old in 1941, on April 6th of 1931, the city of Belgrade uh, was bombed by the Nazis. Uh, and uh, five o'clock in the morning, and a bomb hit a building across the street, and I flew out of bed and uh, fell on the floor. Uh, and so that's how, you know, kind of my life, my conscious life begins. Uh, but toward the end of the war, at uh, some point, um, and I tell the story in this poem, uh, uh, I learned how to play chess, and uh, when I was young, I played very, very good chess. Uh, uh, I could beat all the grown-ups in my neighborhood, uh, which was an additional aggravation to them. Uh, I mean, you know, the war and everything else, the <laughs> bombs, civil war in Yugoslavia, Russians coming, Germans fighting them off, uh, the world collapsing, and then to have a you know, little punk beat you at chess. So, I, you know, I didn't think about this for a long time, but later, later on when I wrote the poem, I realized that this were my glory days, that I will never reach the same fame. <laughs> There's also mention here in this poem of a Roman graveyard, and I didn't realize that this, there would be some misunderstanding as the poem was translated into some, you know, Spanish and Italian and French. They assumed that I meant a Roman Catholic uh, graveyard, but actually I had in mind an ancient Roman graveyard. Uh, there was a place which, where, you know, 2,000 years before or whatever, uh, there was a Roman graveyard because the Roman Empire extended as far as, as Belgrade. Prodigy. I grew up bent over a chessboard. I loved the word endgame. All my cousins looked worried. It was a small house near a Roman graveyard. Planes and tanks shook its window panes. A retired professor of astronomy taught me how to play. That must have been in 1944. In the set we were using, the paint had almost chipped off the black pieces. The white king was missing and had to be substituted for. I'm told, but do not believe, that that summer I witnessed men hung from telephone poles. I remember my mother blindfolding me a lot. She had a way of tucking my head suddenly under her overcoat. 
In chess, too, the professor told me, the masters play blindfolded, the great ones on several boards at the same time. Uh, this is a, a poem called Shelley. Um, I left Chicago. I lived in Chicago and where I finished high school. And uh, uh, but I, I I left Chicago in 1958 and came to New York. And uh, I was wanted to go to New York. I lived in New York before I went to Chicago, and I uh, I wanted to be in New York. And I went by myself and. Uh, uh, when I got to the city, I mean, I, something that I didn't anticipate, I didn't think about it, but I didn't know anybody in the city. Uh, so I spent the, the first few months being very lonely and uh, feeling sorry for myself, and uh, but not wanting to go back to Chicago because all my friends would have said, you know, we told you, you know, stupid, you know. Uh, so I stayed, and you know, stayed for a long time. Uh, so this is a poem written, I think, uh, maybe in 1989 or thereabouts, uh, about the fall of 1958. Called Shelley, Shelley being the great, you know, poet, romantic poet, and I have some lines of Shelley here that I just put in the way I kind of remember them. You know, I, I was going to go and look them up and put them in quotation marks, but then I figured, you know, <laughs> you know, who wants to read Shelley again? <clears throat> All of Shelley. Shelley. Poet of the dead leaves, driven like ghosts, driven like pestilence, stricken multitudes. I read you first one rainy evening in New York City in my atrocious Slavic accent, saying the mellifluous verses from a battered, much-stained volume I had bought earlier that day in a second-hand bookstore on 4th Avenue, run by initiates of the occult masters. The little money I had being almost spent, I walked the streets, my nose in a book. I sat in a dingy coffee shop with last summer's dead flies on the table. The owner was an ex-sailor who had grown a huge hump on his back while watching the rain, the empty street. He was glad to hear me sit and read. He'd refill my cup with a liquid dark as river sticks. Shelley spoke of a mad, blind, dying king, of rulers who neither see nor feel nor know, of graves from which a glorious phantom may burst to illumine our tempestuous day. I too felt like a glorious phantom, going to have my dinner in a Chinese restaurant I knew so well. It had a three-fingered waiter would bring my soup and rice each night without ever saying a word. I never saw anyone else there. The kitchen was separated by a curtain of glass beads which clicked faintly whenever the front door opened. The front door opened that evening 
to admit a pale little girl with glasses. The poet spoke of the everlasting universe of things, of gleams of a remoter world which visit the soul in sleep, of a desert peopled by storms alone. The streets were strewn with broken umbrellas which looked like funereal kites this little Chinese girl might have made. The bars on MacDougal Street were emptying. There had been a fist fight. A man leaned against a lamppost, arms extended as if crucified, the rain washing the blood off his face. In a dimly lit side street, where the sidewalk shone like a ballroom mirror at closing time, a well-dressed man without any shoes asked me for money. His eyes shone. He looked triumphant, like a fencing master who had just struck a mortal blow. How strange it all was, the world's raffle, that dark October night. The yellowed volume of poetry was its splendors and glooms, which I studied by the light of storefronts, drugstores, and barber shops, afraid of my small, windowless room, cold as a tomb of an infant emperor. Another poem from, uh, from this period uh, called Factory. The machines were gone, and so were those who worked them. A single high-backed chair stood like a throne in all that empty space. I was on the floor making myself comfortable for a long night of little sleep and much thinking. An empty birdcage hung from a steam pipe. In it, I kept an apple and a small paring knife. I placed newspapers all around me on the floor so I could jump at the slightest rustle. It was like the scratching of a pen, the silence of the night writing in its diary. Of rats who came to pay me a visit, I had the highest opinion. They'd stand on two feet as if about to make a polite request on a matter of great importance. Many other strange things came to pass. Once a naked woman climbed on the chair to reach the apple in the cage. I was on the floor watching her go on tiptoe, her hand fluttering in the cage like a bird. On other days, the sun peeked through dusty window panes to see what time it was, but there was no clock. Only the knife in the cage glinting like a mirror and the chair in the far corner where someone once sat facing the brick wall. Uh, since 1973, I, I have been living in a, in a small little village in New Hampshire, so uh, and this is, I mean, I have a lot of poems about New Hampshire. Uh, here's one of them uh, a about a country fair uh, in a town nearby, a very large, large country fair, a uh, town called Deerfield, and uh, I'm sure you have fairs like that in Oregon. Country fair. If you didn't see the six-legged dog, it doesn't matter. We did, 
and he mostly lay in the corner. As for the extra legs, one got used to them quickly and thought of other things, like what a cold, dark night to be out at the fair. Then the keeper threw a stick and the dog ran after it on four legs, the other two flapping behind, which made one girl shriek with laughter. She was drunk, and so was the man who kept kissing her neck. The dog got the stick and looked back at us, and that was the whole show. About a couple of years ago, I, I don't know how I got on the subject of, in some literature class. Uh, and uh, talking to students, I mean, I, I realized that they were not aware of being young that there was a time when, the, when watches had to be wound. I mean, there were no batteries for watches and clocks. And... They were kind of looking at me as I was making this up, you know. Um, but I, I had noticed already um, that something was happening, uh, you know, I guess it was back in the, when was it, in the 80s, late 80s? I don't know when this was happening, when, uh, you know, before you could hear time pass, it would tick, it would, you know, uh, certain clocks would really be loud and, can't sleep at night, you know, if you go nuts listening to the ticking. But uh, then, it, you know, they just, uh, the world got silent as far as, you know, time kind of sneaks by. And it's called the Clocks of the Dead. One night, I went to keep the clock company. It had a loud tick after midnight as if it were uncommonly afraid. It's like whistling past the graveyard, I explained. In any case, I told him I understood. Once there were clocks like that in every kitchen in America. Now the factory's windows are all broken. The old men on night shift are in Karen's boat. The day you stop, I said to the clock, the little wheels they keep in reserve will have rolled away into many hard-to-find places. Just thinking about it, I forgot to wind the clock. We woke up in the dark. How quiet the city is, I said. Like the clocks of the dead, my wife replied. Grandmother, on the wall, I heard the snows of your childhood begin to fall. This is a, another New Hampshire poem. Uh, when I came to... New Hampshire in 1973. Um, all the mill towns, the small mill towns, uh, not just in New Hampshire, in Maine and Massachusetts, were closing up, going out of business. All the factories, all the mills were going out of business. Uh, they made shoes, they made leather stuff in New Hampshire, and uh, 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 awful. I mean, you know, there used to be textile mills in the 19th century, and uh, but all these people who worked for generations for them suddenly were left without any employment. Uh, 
and uh, this poem was written uh, in 1973, I guess. As you know, Vietnam War was still on, being dragged out by Nixon and Kissinger, um, people dying, and you know the usual stuff. Uh, this is called Toward Nightfall. The weight of tragic events on everyone's back, just as tragedy in, in the proper Greek sense was thought impossible to compose in our day. There were scaffolds, makeshift stages, puny figures on them like small indistinct animals caught in the headlights crossing the road way ahead. In the great twilight that went on hesitating on the verge of a huge starless autumn night. One could have been in the back of an open truck, hunkering because of the speed and chill. One could have been walking with a sidelong glance at many troubling shapes the bare trees made, like those about to shriek, but finding themselves unable to utter a word now. One could have been in one of these dying mill towns inside a small, dim grocery when the news broke. One would have drawn near the radio with the one many months pregnant who serves there at that hour. Was there a smell of spilled blood in the air, or was it that other, much finer scent of fear? the fear of approaching death one met on the empty street. Monsters and movie posters, too, prominently displayed. Then, six factory girls, arm in arm, laughing as if they'd been drinking. At the very least, one could have been one of them. The one with a mouth painted bright red, who feels out of sorts, for no reason, very pale. And so, excusing herself, vanishes where it says, rooms for rent, and immediately goes to bed, fully dressed, only to lie with eyes open, trembling, despite the covers. It's just a bad chill, she keeps telling herself, not having seen the papers which the landlord has the dog bring from the front porch. The old man never learned to read well, and so reads on in that half-whisper and in that half-light verging on the dark about that day's tragedies, which supposedly are not tragedies in the absence of figures endowed with classic nobility of soul. A poem called Ghosts. Uh, I don't believe in ghosts, and I'm afraid of many things, but ghosts are not something I'm afraid of. Uh, and of course, you know, New England, there isn't an old house that doesn't supposedly have ghosts. People don't see ghosts, and people say, oh, you know, there is an old man, you know, upstairs in the bedroom, you know, he's walking down to the kitchen, and, uh, you know, forget it, you know. But, but, uh, still, this is, a, this is an experience that actually doesn't happen. It didn't happen in New Hampshire, but that kind of on the verge of seeing a ghost or something like that, but uh, um, someplace else. Ghosts. It's Mr. Brown looking much better than he did in the morgue. 
He's brought me a huge carp in a blood-stained newspaper. What an odd visit. I haven't thought of him in years. Linda is with him, and so is Sue. Two pale and elegant fading memories holding each other by the hand. Even their lipstick is fresh, despite all the scientific proofs to the contrary. Is Linda going to cook the fish? She turns and gazes in the direction of the kitchen, while Sue continues to watch me mournfully. I don't believe any of it, and still I'm scared stiff. I know no way to respond, so I do nothing. The windows are open. The air is thick with the scent of magnolias. Drops of evening rain are dripping from the dark and heavy leaves. I take a deep breath. I close my eyes. Dear specters, I don't even believe you are here, so how is it you are making me comprehend things I would rather not know just, not, just yet? It's the way you stare past me at what must already be my own ghost before taking your leave as unexpectedly as you came in without one of us breaking the silence. A poem called Serving Time, and uh, it was a poem that just came out of that phrase, that title. I mean, I, serving time, we all servants of time, we always, you know, what time is it, uh, this and that, and uh, uh, I, I kind of heard all the connotations of that phrase, and the poem came out of that. Serving time. Another dreary day in time's invisible penitentiary, making license plates with lots of zeros, <laughs> walking lockstep counterclockwise in the exercise yard or watching the lights dim when some poor fellow who could as well be me gets fried. Here on death row, I read a lot of books. First, it was law, as you'd expect. Then came history, ancient and modern. Finally, philosophy. All that being and nothingness stuff. The more I read, the less I understand. Still, other inmates call me professor. Did I mention that we had no guards. It's a closed book who locks and unlocks the cell doors for us. Even the executions we carry out by ourselves, attaching the wires, playing warden, playing chaplain, all because a little voice in our head whispers something about our last appeal being, de being denied by God himself. The others hear nothing, of course, but that typically, you may as well face it, is how time runs things around here. This is an old poem of mine, just a little slightly different version. I mean, just a few words changed, but uh, it addresses a problem 
Look, it's been a problem for poets for well, at least I can go back to about the third century BC. Uh, already the Greek poets were beginning to worry about the difficulty of these describing your beloved features. I mean, what do you say about her hair, her lips, her eyes, her etc. Uh, that hasn't been said before. Uh, they're already, you know, despairing, trying to find ways, uh, you know, to say how superior your features are to anyone else's. Uh, I mean, it really goes back to, you know, they were writing about Helen and all those goddesses and so forth. And uh, I mean, they, they sort of read out of all the, you know, all the comparisons. So this is a huge, it's a huge problem because, uh, I mean, people continue to fall in love. And uh, uh, I mean, poems have been used as tools of seduction for, for a long time. So... Uh, Imagine, you know, showing up with, with a bunch of cliches, right? Uh, this is called My Beloved. In the fine print of her face, her eyes are two loopholes. No, let me start again. Her eyes are flies in milk. Her eyes are baby Dracula's. To hell with her eyes. <laughs> Let me tell you about her mouth. Her mouth's the red cottage where the wolf ate grandma. <laughs> <laughs> ah, forget about her mouth. Let me talk about her breasts. I get a peek at them now and then. And even that's more than enough to make me lose my head. So I better tell you about her legs. When she crosses them on the sofa, it's like the jailer unwrapping a parcel. And in that parcel is a Christmas cake. And in that cake, a sweet little file that gasps her name as it files my chains. This is called Aunt Dinah Sail to China. Bearded ancestors, what became of you? Have you gone and hid yourself in some cabin in the woods to listen to your whiskers growing peace? Clergymen padding chin curtains, soldiers with door knockers, sickly youths with goatees, town drunks, proud of their ducktails. Cousin Kate, was that a real mustache you wore as you stood in church waiting for your bridegroom to run up the stairs someday? And you, Grandpa, when you shouted at God to do something about the world, be kept quiet and let the night fall, seeing your beard was whiter than his. This, this is called 
that little something. It's a, it's a poem, again, one of these poems that, you know, you have the first part and then years pass before you get the second part uh, because there's no obvious continuation. You just have to live your life. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's kind of incredible. I mean, you have to live 20, 30 years to, to get an additional stanza, and that's because it's, you know, just you need to live the time to have it. That little something. The likelihood of ever finding it is small. It's like being accosted by a woman and asked to help her look for a pearl she lost right here in the street. She could be making it all up, even her tears, you say to yourself, as you search under your feet, thinking, not in a million years. It's one of those summer afternoons when one needs a good excuse to step out of a cool shade. In the meantime, whatever became of her? And why, years later, do you still, off and on, cast your eyes to the ground as you hurry to some appointment where you are now certain to arrive late? I read a few poems from the my my most recent book. This is called uh, uh, Two Dreams. I should say something about this poem. Uh, I notice that when I dream about, and I don't dream that often, but when I dream about my, my childhood, the Second World War years and years after the war, uh, my my films have the appearance of all the black white, black and white movies of that period. Uh, kind of grainy and, uh, and black and white. To dreams. I'm still living at all the old addresses, wearing dark glasses even indoors, on the hush-hush sharing my bed with phantoms, visiting the kitchen after midnight to check the faucet. I'm late for school, and when I get there, no one seems to recognize me. I sit, disowned, sequestered, and withdrawn. These small shops open only at night, where I make my unobtrusive purchases. These backdoor movie houses in seedy neighborhoods still showing grainy films of my life. The hero always full of extravagant hope, losing it all in the end, whatever it was, then walking out into the cold, disbelieving light, waiting close-lipped at the exit. And this is called my, this is the title poem of the book, it's called My Noiseless Entourage. We were never formally introduced. I had no idea of their number. It was like a discreet entourage of homegrown angels and demons, all of whom I had met before and had since largely forgotten. In time of danger, they made themselves scarce. Where did they all vanish to? I asked some fellow one night 
Well, he held a knife to my throat. But he was spooked too, letting me go without a word. It was disconcerting, downright frightening to be reminded of one's solitude. Like opening a children's book with nothing better to do. Reading about stars. How they can afford to spend centuries traveling our way on a glint of light. I always had a, a sort of a fantasy that the place to teach writing or to teach literature is in a used bookstore. But not in a used bookstore that sells first editions, valuable first editions, but kind of used bookstores that we have quite a few in, in part of New England where I, where I live, where they just have floors and floors of mediocre books, books that, I mean, I don't know how they survive and why they keep them. And uh, so this little poem called Used Bookstore. Lovers hold hands in never open novels. The page with a recipe of, for cucumber soup is missing. A dead man writes of his happy childhood on a farm of riding in a balloon over Lake Erie. A sudden draft shuts his book in my hand while a philosopher asks, how is it possible to maintain the theologically orthodox doctrine of eternal punishment of the damned? Let's see. There may be sand among the pages of a travel guide to Egypt or even a dead flea that once bit the ass of the mysterious Abigail who scribbled her name teasingly with an eye pencil. <laughs> Two more poems, and then questions. Uh, uh, this is called My Turn to Confess. My Turn to Confess. A dog trying to write a poem on why he barks that's me, dear reader. They were about to kick me out of the library, but I warned them. My master is invisible and all-powerful. Still, they kept dragging me out by the tail. In the park, the birds spoke freely of their own vexations. On a bench, I saw an old woman cutting her white curly hair with imaginary scissors while staring into a small pocket mirror. I didn't say anything then, but that night I lay slumped on the floor, chewing on a pencil, sighing from time to time, growling too at something out there I could not bring myself to name. A poem called in the planetarium, uh, this is not a fancy planetarium, this is a planetarium in New England, uh, in New Hampshire, actually, and uh, it's tough to have a planetarium up there because, I mean, the weather is, you know, lousy most of the time, and uh, uh, I don't have much money, I mean, uh, New Hampshire is a state that doesn't have any taxes at all, you know. Uh, so we don't have money for anything. Um, 
and you know, looking at stars, forget it, you know. But it's a great disappointment to, you know, children. I mean, they bring little kitties, and uh, there's nothing to see. <laughs> so what they've done some years back is they've, uh, I guess this is done other places too. Uh, they just, you know, get from world's famous planetariums uh, videos of, of just, you know, their best stuff that they got and um, and then they spliced them and you know and they just produce these kind of programs that are just incredibly spectacular uh, a little speeded up you know but uh, you know just you see you see a lot of things and uh, you it's like a theater and you can you can sort of recline your seat all the way back and you look up and there's a sphere and uh, it opens up and and uh, it looks like you, you know, you're looking at the real sky at night and uh, and seeing all of all of that. And uh, so, uh, this is a little poem called "In a Planetarium." Never yet equaled widescreen blockbuster that grew more and more muddled after a spectacular opening shot. The pace, even for the most patient, killingly slow, despite the promise of a show-stopping, eye-popping ending. The sudden shriveling of the whole to its teensy starting point, erasing all, including this bag of popcorn we are sharing. Yes, an intriguing but finally irritating puzzle with no answer forthcoming tonight from the large cast of stars and galaxies, in what may be called a prodigious expenditure of time, money, and talent. Let's get the f*** out of here, I said. (laughs) Just as her upraised eyes grew moist and she confided to me much too loudly, I have never seen anything so beautiful. (laughs) Thank you. That was Charles Simic for a 2007 Poetry Downtown event. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swain. Special thanks to the Literary Arts Marketing staff, Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. The show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here. Here.